The monster's in the woods. He's trying to kill Hercules. Hercules! He's wounded. Is it serious? I'm afraid it is. Get a litter right away. We're going to have to carry him to Amok as soon as possible. Okay, I am once again joined by Adrian, uh, who's usually across the pond, but right now is actually a little bit closer to me. Uh, He hasn't ventured into the United States, which is probably a good idea given the state of things right now. But Adrian, (laughs) thank you for joining me again. You have once again uh, come up with an idea for a podcast that would not necessarily have occurred to me. Uh, except that it is uh, Margariti connected. Uh, yes, yeah, so I am currently in the same continent as you, which is nice. But I'm still, I don't know how many thousands of miles away, probably. Uh, but I've been in Toronto for a film conference at a university here. And so my, because I'm still doing my PhD, which I feel like I've been doing for my whole life. And the last few months, um, I've been writing about Peplum films, sword and sandal films, which is what led me to Hercules, Prisoner of Evil, the movie that we're going to do. And it's because um, I've been writing about quite a few of the films, like the very first Hercules film and a couple of the others, uh, because I've been writing about the way they were distributed in, uh, in Britain in the 60s. And from what I can tell, this film actually wasn't distributed in Britain in the 60s at all, which is a shame. So as I've been uh, writing about some of these movies, I've obviously been aware of Margariti because he's directed two or three of these kind of films. But I haven't had to write about any of his uh, uh, Peplum films for my thesis. So I thought, well, what can I do about that? And then for a long time, I've been toying with the idea of starting an Antonio Margheriti blog, which would give me an excuse to just watch each of his films and write about them. Partly inspired, obviously, by your podcasts. And so... Glad we can be inspirational in some way. Oh, absolutely. In many ways, I'm sure. But uh, so, yeah, so I decided to start this uh, blog, and I've called it Blogheriti, obviously, which is a terrible, (laughs) I don't know. At first, I thought it was clever. Now, I just think it's a bit awful. But it's too late now because <laughs> I started it. So, uh, Bloggerity, which is like Margariti, but with blog, uh, .blogspot.com. And uh, so, I've decided I'm going to blog about every one of his films. Not in, or- not in the order that he made them, just in the order that I watched them. Well, it would because, be uh, a little difficult to do in some places yeah. simply because he made so many films in such a short space of time. Oh, yeah. And and some of them are easier to track down than others. So if I tried to do it in order, I think I'd fall down fairly early on. So I started this blog a few weeks ago and I wrote a little introductory thing. And so here we are. The first film that I have properly blogged on uh, is Hercules, Prisoner of Evil. Well, right so, off the bat, you you came up with some information that I was unaware of, just because I had not dug into this film at all yet. 
the fact that uh, Antonio Margariti did not actually direct it, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like coming in um, under false pretenses. Like uh, <laughs> It's like a Trojan horse. You think it's a Margariti film, but actually it's a Ruggiero Deodato film. So th- this was why I sort of got in touch with you to see if you wanted to talk about it, because obviously we did Cannibal Holocaust uh, a few months ago, which was Deodato. And I mentioned then, I don't want to feel like I'm, I don't want people to think I'm name dropping. But when I interviewed Deodato <laughs> a few years ago, I talked to him about Margariti. And he told me about how helpful Margariti had been to him in his career in those early days. Because he was uh, an assistant director for Margariti a few times. So that and um, so Margariti was supposed to be directing this one. But he was also directing like three or four other films at the same time. So he basically went turned to his trusted assistant director and said, hey, <laughs> do you want to direct a film? So that's kind of how this one came about. But because of contractual reasons, Margareti was still technically the director credited as Anthony M. Dawson, of course. Well, from what I've read over the years, that seems to have been a pretty common practice in the Italian film industry. Yeah, uh, Deodato did a few films under the name, uh, I think it was Roger Rockefeller, (laughs) which is pretty terrible. But what the the advantage was, he said, that if the film was terrible, you would just change change the director's name for the next one you made. So you wouldn't (laughs) be like tarred as being, oh, that director's rubbish. (laughs) <laughs> because they would never know it was the same guy because you'd just change your name again. And if your film was good, then you'd keep the name. Well, I did notice that uh, you had made kind of a, a jokey line on the blog entry about him, uh, about Margariti being involved in six films the year this one came out. And you weren't kidding. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Was I mean, it you l- can't, some film directors don't make six films in their whole career. I mean, how long has it taken Quentin Tarantino to make six films? Like 20 years or something? Exactly. And yet, in 1964, we have uh, Long Hair of Death, Giants of Rome, this movie, Castle of Blood, a documentary called Mondo Inferno, and a film called The Slave Merchants. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Just one year. And then he didn't even take a holiday because this is all. This is before he did the um, the Gamma One films as well. They were the year after this, I think, or not long yeah, after this. Yeah. So that kind of punishing schedule was just the norm for him in the certainly in the first half of the sixties. I think it did slow down a little bit later on, but yeah, he was just a workaholic. But this isn't to say that he didn't have anything to do with this movie as I'm sure we'll talk about as we get to the plot. But he, um, being the, you've talked a lot in your other podcasts about him, about his love of miniatures and how good he was at doing miniatures work and special effects work. And so he did oversee uh, those sequences. But as far as I know, that is all, those like the only bits he actually directed. So all of the stuff where people are being directed, that was uh, Diodato. Well, having seen the film now in both its uh, Italian language version and the English dub, uh, no matter how many times I watch this movie, that ending with the miniatures uh, still comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, it's 
Well, with the, with a lot of these films, and the, I've done a lot of reading on it, obviously looking at them from a sort of academic perspective, it's a common thread that, and, and certainly with the films I've seen, the plot is not um, it's not the driving force in the creation of these films. It's like they are a series of spectacles because the the prime audiences for these films would be talking to each other, they would be socialising the cinema, they'd be moving seats, they'd be eating. So they would just be entertained by sequences on the screen. They weren't necessarily there for the story. Do you know what I mean? That's why the plots often don't really make sense. And I was unaware st- of that. That's yeah, incredible. It, that's basically, I mean, obviously, you could probably argue that that isn't true <laughs> if you wanted to. But this is certainly the kind of academic uh, analysis of the peplum, is that, and certainly an analysis of historical uh, Italian audiences, because these films were not highbrow entertainment. You know, they were kind of films for the uh, for the masses, pr- predominantly out in the countryside and stuff. So it's like it's a bit, a bit like going to the circus and seeing a sequence of performances that are entertaining. So you'll have a sequence where the strong man will get to show off his strength and you know pose and look great and 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 then like in this film we've got this special effect sequence that could possibly have been tacked on from another film because it yeah. doesn't really have anything to do with the story but it didn't really matter because for audience it was just it was all audiences it was just about a series of moments, if you know what I mean, rather than a coherent narrative. Which well, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I've seen a few of these films in a short period of time, and I can definitely say that that is true of the ones I've seen. Well, that's a good place to start with a certain question. How many peplums, how many sword and sandal films made in Italy in this period have you seen overall? Oh, <laughs> have I seen? I said, well, I've... Again, academics uh, estimates vary depending on who you read, but the minimum amount of films that were actually made in this period was we're talking 1958 to 1966. The the lower estimate puts it at about 150 peplum films. The higher estimates put it at around 300 peplum films. So that's a lot of movies in a short space of time. So narrowing that down, I've identified about 50 films. That were that made it into British cinemas in the 60s. So, and then narrowing that down further to just the ones that I've been writing about, I've probably watched about five or six. Which it's it's a little bit like Jess Franco. If you've seen a few, you've probably seen all of them. If you know what I mean. I like, I can I can agree with that to a large degree. But so I've seen joy. about five. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're great fun. But I've yeah, well, that's it. just it. Part of the joy is uh, getting a hang of what the formula is and then seeing the variations within it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, some of them are, d- are definitely more entertaining than others. Um, but, yeah, the, the, there are certainly very striking similarities. And I've re- also read plot descriptions of other films that I haven't seen. And what they would sometimes do uh, in order to save money they would make one film inside another film. So <laughs> they would commission a big budget epic, well, a relatively big budget epic, but then they would also commission another script writer to write another script that they could make within the first film, which would be quicker and cheaper, but use all the same sets and costumes and usually actors as well. 
often. And so you would kind of get two films for the price of one. Um, so they were they were making the films at a huge uh, volume and constantly reusing sets and costumes and props and stuff to the point where I think if you watched enough of them, and I haven't done this, but if you watched enough, you could definitely say, oh, recognize that pillar. And oh, there's that statue again. I saw that in that other one. You know what I mean? That you would constantly yeah. see these things coming up, and um, because that's why I mean they were making the films so quickly, making so many of them, because it was a way of just reusing and recycling stuff. So the the productions were often very cheap, and that's kind of how the um, the genre started. Although we we call Hercules the first one, the 1958 Hercules with um, Steve Reeves. That kind of set the template. But before that, there were other, what you might call proto-Peplum films. Things there, there was a version of Spartacus that Ricardo Freda did and a couple of others. And they all came, well, arguably, because Hollywood, you know, Hollywood went to to use the studios in Rome in the 50s and it yeah. became known as Hollywood on the Tiber. And they made a film called Quo Vadis, which was very, uh, was a big, you know, worldwide success. And it was partly as well to that that the Italian studios thought, well, if, if they can make Quo Vadis, we can, we can make that too. And so you started to get epics like the Freda's Spartacus and stuff. But then her, what the genius of Hercules in, in 1958 was that it, was, was it kind of it got everything right. It was an American star and it was a kind of comic book version of it wasn't trying to be true to the myths and the legends. It was like a comic version of it. But then it was the way that the film was bought and marketed in America by Joseph E. Levine that turned it into this huge sensation. He spent over a million dollars on the marketing of Hercules in America and made it one of the biggest films of the year, you know, and that was it then. Immense and immortal was the strength of Hercules. Savage and sensual was the world of Hercules. Lavishly produced amid pagan palaces on Mediterranean shores, where Hercules lived, loved, and awed his fellow men. Here is fascinating drama, epic in scope, of palace intrigue and murder, of deeds reckless and heroic, the great curse and labors laid upon Hercules. May the curse of the gods be upon you. May the hatred of men persecute you until you have paid for the blood of Ephesus. A love so great it defied the gods. Hercules, a legend undimmed in thousands of years, all here to bring you thrill upon thrill. The voyage to distant lands, the attack of the monkey man, the dragon monster guarding the golden fleece, the love-starred warrior women on the island of Amazons, knew so well how to entice and tease and kiss before they killed. The vengeance of the sea god. The battle for the crown of Joko.
once Italians saw that that could happen, there was no stopping them. Oh, Until, they were um, off to the races, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was only really the Spaghetti Western that um, kind of killed off the peplum. Uh, well, that interest- is something that, as a as an academic studying this, you may know. Was it just that the Spaghetti Westerns came along, or were the peplums getting to be less profitable? It's probably a bit of both. Um, you know, like anything, if you, if you if you oversaturate your market and make five hundred, you know, whatever it was, three hundred films, audiences are going to start to get a bit exhausted by it, I guess. And the the, the Western was on the on the up as this was on the down so there's kind of a crossover but a lot of the same directors that were making these films went on to make the spaghetti westerns and if you actually analyze the basic plot of the peplum the spaghetti westerns were often the same plots it's just that they're in a desert town instead of a you know ancient greek city but or once we get in, in when you know, when we get into the plot of this movie we could yeah. perhaps point out some of the similarities but the the basic idea of this kind of you know the man with no name coming into the western town and then uh being recruited by the locals to overthrow some local uh tyrant you know some evil whoever he is corrupt sheriff or whatever it might be you know he comes in he sorts it all out and then he leaves again that's that's the plot of all the peplums (laughs) so whether or not they're set in ancient greece or not yeah yeah they're, they're all the plot is basically the same for every Pepper <clears throat> film. It all comes down to this idea of an evil regime that has to be overthrown, and the Spaghetti Western is a lot of them are like that as well. So it's quite interesting. This, I'm sure, in some cases they just took the same scripts and <laughs> just changed the names, and you know, gave the actors cowboy hats instead of little skirts. Well, but I can the, say that's probably true, <laughs> considering Steve Reeves did give uh, Spaghetti Westerns a shot later in well, his career. Well, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, a few of these guys did. I think because we've got Reg Park in this one, I'm fairly sure. I don't know, maybe he did. But uh, certainly a, a bunch of them did cross over. Just because they were, obviously, they were just working and they would need, they'd go wherever the money was. And the money moved to Spaghetti Westerns. And, uh, and that was it. But anyway, well, you brought up the lead actor in this film, Reg Park. Um, I've been a big fan of his for years without having paid attention to the fact that he only ever made five movies. Yeah. Yeah. He had a short, he was a pretty short career. He went back to bodybuilding from what I know, from what I've read. Yeah. And apparently was very, very successful in that even uh, after he retired from competition, uh, he was known as one of uh, the great mentors and personal heroes of Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was young. And I believe, because Reg Park, a bit like Steve Reeves, Reg Park was Mr. Universe at Mm -hmm. one point before he was the the actor. But then when Arnie was was, was doing all that sort of stuff, Reg Park went back into competition so that he did actually compete against Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though he was about 20 years older. The story is that uh, they competed against each other, I think, in 1971, and uh, Schwarzenegger won by half a point. Considering the age difference. Well, here's the thing. With Ridge Park, uh, I had always assumed he was in a lot more movies than just the five, and I guess yeah. it's because... Not because I had seen this movie, which I had not until just recently, 
but I was well aware of him in Hercules and the Captive Women and Hercules <laughs> and the Haunted World, which is the Mario Bava peplum, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah, you know, I've never seen the um, the Hercules and the Haunted World, and it's it's a Bava film I really want to see, but I've kind of I've been waiting for because I've not been in any hurry. Again, I haven't had to watch it uh, for my thesis because it's not on the list. Um, so I've been waiting for it to come out on a decent Blu-ray before I actually spring to uh, to picking up a copy. And I'm suspicious. I think Arrow may have Hercules in the Haunted World on their slate potentially because they did just announce recently because they've done a load of Bible stuff in this country as you probably know. And they recently announced that they're putting out Eric the Conqueror, <laughs> which is yeah. a bit of an obscure Mario Bava film to suddenly put on Arrow Blu-ray. So if they're doing Eric the Conqueror, then I'm fairly sure that uh, they'll do the Hercules film at some point soon, which would be great. Uh, there are a lot of people who put it at the top of their uh, peplum list as a best yeah. of. It's the one with it's got Christopher Lee in it, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So it's obviously it's got it's got great uh, cult cachet. So I hope that they do, because I think, I mean, you can get it on DVD, but like a lot of these Peplum films, the, the releases have been very kind of erratic and they often get put out on quite poor DVDs. And Apart from in Italy, Italy seemed to do some good ones. But Well, in the United States, at least, one of the problems with getting a good release of any of these movies is that um, a lot of them get released in these really crappy multi-film sets where yeah. we're looking at chopped down television prints that are panned and scanned and they don't do a thing for enhancing your appreciation of the movie uh, you just basically kind of get the idea of what the story was and what yeah. happened and that's about it well in uh, in the states a lot of these movies i think after you know for the first few years they were theatrical releases like hercules and hercules unchained and so on but then they started to go straight to TV or or maybe drive-ins. So there was a whole series of films called The Sons of Hercules, which I think Joseph E. Levine had something to do with. So they would just buy, he would just buy uh, a bucket full of peplum films from Italy, and there'd be Samson or Machiste or Goliath or whoever, and they would just get put straight onto TV, dubbed as The Sons of Hercules. Um, and those are probably the main versions that are still floating around now. So when you do get DVDs, they will be the dubbed TV versions from the 60s and not the nice original Italian language widescreen version. Like Because like, Hercules, Prisoner of Evil, that was one that only went to TV. But fortunately for us, we've managed to get hold of the, the Italian widescreen print. Yes, and it really makes the film pop as much as mm. it can. I mean, there's... Uh... <laughs> There's a when we'll we'll get into this in a minute, but um, uh, seeing I think, I think, any film, yeah, I already it, know. I already know. I think what you're thinking about, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the thing about it is though is that I always want to see the film I'm watching in the best possible print, uh, yeah. in the correct aspect ratio, kind of trying to get the best idea of what the filmmakers intended when they made the movie. And man, uh, I'm don't get me wrong. I'm very happy to just get the chance to see a movie that I'm actually interested in. But, man, the better the print, the happier I am. And, well, having sat <laughs> through 
like I say, the Italian and the English version of this in the past week, I can say that uh, whew, there's a there's a major difference in seeing these films in those two different ways. Yeah. Aniko. <laughs> Hercules. I managed to leave the city only because Prince Zara called the Kyrgyz chieftains to a meeting. I'm so afraid. I know we're going to have civil war. Today he proposed marriage to me so that he could hold all power in his hands. <laughs> Please don't treat this lightly. Zara is determined to gain absolute sovereignty. Then I'll call a meeting of all my tribal chiefs. And I'll send my brother Elo to explain to them that we must avoid any action which could possibly be considered by Zara as a provocation. You have a brother? Yes, he returned today. For years he's been traveling and studying. He'll be very useful to us. Why haven't you mentioned him before? I hope you're not jealous of him. No, but I shouldn't like your clever brother's negotiations to raise a barrier between us. All right, the English language title for this, or at least the title it was released under here in the United States, is Hercules, Prisoner of Evil. But that is not really the title of the film in Italy. Uh, it was released under a very different title. It was, um, yeah, and this is, a, again, a classic uh, marketing technique on behalf of the American or, or sometimes the British distributors. So the original title is Ursus. I'm not going to pronounce. I'm not going to pronounce this right at all. Ursus <laughs> il terrore dei Kirchisi, I think, or Ursus, the terror of the Kirgisi or Cherkesi. I don't know. I've not quite got the pronunciation. Close enough two, for us. This, yeah, there's two tribes of people, and the bad guys are called the, the Cherkesi, I think. But um, so in a lot of these strongman films, they would have names from classical mythology obviously hercules goliath but then they started to go biblical so they had samson who sometimes teamed up with hercules and, and so on um but then they also had a, they had a character called machiste who uh, comes from a silent film called cabria and he was such a popular character this is back in like 1912 or 13 um cabira i think it was called anyway this character was so popular that he got his own series of films so he became a hero and then so Machiste came back in the 60s movies. But then also Ursus was a character from Coivardis. And there had been a silent film version of Coivardis. So Ursus was another character that got his own movies. And so by this point, when they're writing these Peplum scripts, they're just digging up names from all over the world. <laughs> so that's why this is about Ursus. The fact that he was once a character in Coivardis, which is a, a Roman set story, appears to make no difference because here Ursus appears to be living somewhere in Mongolia. But, um, yeah, yeah and so Ur Ursus is uh, the terror. I'm not sure what they mean by terror of the Chikisi, whether they're saying that Ursus is the terror of the Chikisi, like they should be scared of him, or Ursus and the terror of Chikisi. I, I don't quite know what they mean. The way I read that title, the original title, is um, Ursus is kind of to be feared, yeah, um, by the other tribesmen. So yeah. that's kind yeah, of the maybe, idea. Yeah, I that's thought. probably what it is. 
But, but uh, yeah, that is the that is the one of the things you have to immediately do, which is once you start watching a lot of these sword and sandal films made in Italy, you'll notice pretty quickly that not all of them take place in Greece, and not <laughs> all of them are actually Hercules stories, no matter yeah. what the dubbing says. Yeah, they. Um, I mean, it isn't yeah? They basically. I think they were just to say from just making everything look the same every time they they really started to expand their when I mean, we've got this one film where hercules goes to the moon um <laughs> we've got films set in atlantis yeah uh, there's at least one western uh, and perhaps yeah. the weirdest the weirdest one is um one that mario barva helped out on which is where machiste is in 17th century scotland <laughs> yeah and he, and he meets a witch and it's basically Mario Bava came in to help out because they were doing a very similar sequence to the uh, opening of uh, Black Sunday. And so Machiste is like, I don't know, he's invoked by a witch's curse in Scotland. So, yeah, so these films could go pretty much anywhere. They were not located geographically or even by any kind of firm mythology. It's really like somebody just took a load of different books from the the classic section of the library and, and put them in a blender <laughs> and then saw what came out. And and what we get is a hopefully entertaining, fun adventure film. Exactly. And with this one, I think I mentioned it in my blog post, the fact that this one is set in Mongolia kind of makes sense because there's a couple of other Peplum films that were made around the same time that are also set in Mongolia. So it's perfectly possible that the costumes are being shared between productions, and that's why we've got this. Uh, this they decided to do another one. Here. Yeah, I I noticed that the uh, actor who plays the main bad guy, uh, Furio Minoconi, uh, the very same year was in a movie called Terror of the Steps, uh, which is you know. A Kirk Morris film, which I'm assuming he may have oh, even right. used the same costume for. Probably. Who knows? Yeah, because I know there's another one, um, Hercules against the Barbarians, or Machiste, now Inferno di Genghis Khan, <laughs> which was in 1964. <laughs> so uh, Machiste was fighting Genghis Khan in 1964. So, and these costumes have got definitely the, the whiff of Genghis Khan about them. Yeah, Lord knows what they're actually smelling like to the poor actors. <laughs> It's true. It's all like yak fur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, didn't they know that stuff was supposed to be on your face to play a wolf man? Come on. That's true. Well, you say that. It's funny. The IMDb uh, plot description here does mention werewolves. I know, which doesn't which makes really... Which makes me think whoever wrote that hadn't seen it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Well, uh, let's anyway. let's go through this pretty interesting plot synopsis bit by bit here, and uh, we'll, we we can stop as we go along to comment on the action or often inaction okay. as we as we do this. Okay, uh, the film begins with uh, a small caravan of merchants uh, being attacked by a hideously deformed ape-like creature with incredible strength. Only one mm. man who uh, Ursus finds under the rubble survives the attack, but not for long. He dies before he can give us any details about the monster that has been plaguing the. Uh, uh, I mean, you can hardly you can hardly be surprised that he died because yeah. it's not like they 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 didn't just treat his wounds 
uh, where he was lying. They like picked him up, slapped him <laughs> over the back of a horse, rode it off down the mountain. You know, the poor guy. <laughs> if he had just... any broken bones, they were just continuing to pierce <laughs> flesh. <laughs> yeah, he was internally bleeding. It was just a mess. <laughs> so it's no wonder he didn't survive, really. Well, the uh, the prince regent of the area is a guy named uh, Zeratelli, uh, and he's uh, he's our bad guy. He believes that uh, Ursus is behind the attacks. He thinks that Ursus is trying to raise the tempers of the neighboring tribes so that they will band together and try to topple uh, Zeratelli uh, and his oppressive hold over them. Uh, now, this guy thinks that if he marries his own cousin... That would be uh, Amiko, the daughter of the last great Khan. It will yeah. give him enough power to control the tribes, no matter what the opposition is. But Aniko doesn't think much of the idea. She's been having a secret relationship with Ursus, as if the uh, incest situation wouldn't have been enough to kind of put her off doing the whole and marriage she, thing. She's got this secret love cave. I know, I know. That, okay, that's, okay. that's not a euphemism. It's no, an actual cave. No. It's an actual cave where she meets Ursus slash Hercules uh, to, <clears throat> well, they do a couple of things there. <laughs> Let's, they're, they're obviously lovers, and they, this has been going on for some time, uh, but uh, we'll get to the mysterious aspect of it later. I mean, everybody would, would, would be, we want to go to a secret love cave with Reg Park, so that's okay. Yeah. Well, the uh, Ursus's people slash Hercules people, uh, the the, the Chikassians, I think, um, they have a celebration when uh, Ursus's brother uh, Eco Elo shows up uh, at the party. Ursus has only just begun to tell his brother about the beautiful outsider Katia, who's a part of the tribe, when he's mysteriously called away. Uh, that's because. Hercules slash Ursus is uh, <laughs> off to a meeting with Aniko and her. He, yeah, he's cavern. like, oh, it's great to see you, brother. I haven't seen you for ages, blah, blah, blah. But I've got a better offer <laughs> yeah, with, uh, with a sexy lady in a cave. So see you later. Well, you know, yeah, I, I, I love my brother and all, but uh, given the opportunity. <laughs> uh, well, well, she is very beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know, the actress that plays her, what's her name? Morel. I can't do any of these names. Mirele Grinelli. Grinelli? Yes. Uh, she's beautiful. So, you know, who can blame him? Well, I, I will say that immediately the film does set up. Uh, that, of course, uh, the, the, this actress has dark hair. But the uh, Katia, the uh, the young woman who we've just drawn attention to that's yes. part of the tribe, but wasn't born into the, the tribe... Uh, yeah. Has blonde hair, exactly. Which, if you've watched enough peplum films, you will immediately pick up on a very simple <laughs> thing, which is dark hair mean bad, blonde hair mean good. Mm. So, unless this movie is going to do something radically different from the norm for this genre, keep your eyes open. <laughs> I don't think um, I don't think Diodato was trying to challenge the uh, conventions of the genre when he made this film. <laughs> no, and it would have, it would be great to talk to him about the uh, the casting process for these films because yeah. I do wonder if it was just that simplistic just to go with hair color as an identifier. 
I mean, I imagine for this one, I don't know, again, the, 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 the main information I got about this was from, um, there's a really good book published by Fab Press about Roger De, Ruggiero Deodato's career. So it talks a bit about that. So it says that he was involved in the directing, but I don't know whether maybe, it'd be nice to think that Margariti had something to do in the pre-production and maybe he was involved with the casting and, and so it's, on. It's very possible. Yeah. Okay, so while uh, Hercules slash Ursus is away in the love cave, uh, <laughs> Katya is attacked by the monster and the men chase it in, in the forest. Uh, Hercules slash Ursus joins them as his brother finds his way to Aniko's secret rooms in the uh, cave. Now, backing up a little bit here, the yep. monster came to stab Zeratelli. No, not Zeratelli. Sorry, Eo. Oh, Io. yeah, that's right. So Io is sleeping in the same tent as Kato or Kato or whatever her name is. Katya. And Kat, yeah, she wakes or, up yeah. and sees the this kind of hilariously made up monster standing above the brother and is about to stab him and she screams and the monster drops his knife and runs off. And she grabs the knife and hides it under her pillow. And that's when Io like goes off to find the monster and then Ursus comes back and he's all like, oh, what's going on? So this, for some reason, the monster, although in the previous scene we've just seen him attacking at random, was specifically trying to assassinate Io. Which is a little odd. Yeah, suspicious. Exactly. So uh, Hercules slash Ursus, same guy, come on people, stay with me, <laughs> joins them uh, as he, his brother, finds his way to a Nico secret cave. Uh, there, uh, she tries to get. Uh, uh, is it is it, it it's Eco in the uh, English dub and Elo? Yeah, well, I I would say um, oh, I can't remember how. Yeah, I think I was saying Io, Elo, yeah, something like that. Well, yeah. anyway, she tries matter. to uh, get to know him a little bit better, if you know what I mean, and. Uh-huh. Uh, offers him some of her special wine to help him relax, just the way it helps Hercules relax. Mm. Uh, Yeah. So, as Hercules and his men go through the woods, they are killed off one after another by the monster. Hercules is badly wounded in fighting with the monster who disappears back into the woods. Yeah. Now, this being the first time that Hercules slash Ursus has actually fought the monster and it kind of that uh, they've brought that up repeatedly uh, in the film at that point which is that <laughs> he and his men hunt for this thing all the time and they can never find it yeah and so the, the question is starting to appear in even the dimmest viewers mind that uh, there might be something up here mm. so when you were watching this do you already begin to be suspicious oh yeah because I have to confess, I, I wasn't. I think I was too distracted by the monster's makeup to try and figure out what it was supposed to be. Because it reminded me of the. Um, it's a little bit like the Frankenstein makeup in "I Was a Teenage Frankenstein." And yeah. It kind of reminded me of that, like a perfect physique, and then just this kind of slapped thing on his face. Well, that and a lot of. Um, well, in that scene where he attempts to murder. Uh, Hercules's brother there's a side shot and there's like all this hair 
taped to or glued to his body as well. And yeah. it's really patchy and weird looking. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really gross. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen men like that on a beach. You know, it's like really <laughs> nasty body hair problem. Which is why I wear a shirt on the beach, he said, <laughs> in shame. You. There you go. Yeah, I'm, I know how disgusting I look, trust me. <laughs> so now, what's in, I mean, Hercules is attacked, and he's basically in a coma now for most of the rest of the film. I know, and it's the brother character, uh, Elo or Eco, who takes yeah. over the main body of the story for about half an hour. Yeah, and now again, this is not uncommon. Although it seems really strange that the title character is 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 knocked out of the film. I mean, this this happens in Hercules with Steve Reeves. He's the hero for the first half of the movie, and then he joins the crew of the Argonautica to go with Jason to find the Golden Fleece. Right. And then Jason is the main character, and Hercules is just kind of in the background, and Jason is the one who actually goes and fights the the giant dinosaur monster that's protecting the fleece while Hercules just hangs out on the ship. (laughs) Um, And it it was, it's not, I think one of the reasons is that because these star actors don't speak Italian. So, and you can tell, I mean, Reg Park, bless him. He's got a great body, but he's not an actor. No. (laughs) And he looks great in a lot of the fights. Yes. But give him a, give him a dialogue scene and he's floundering. (laughs) <laughs> because everyone around him is speaking Italian and he's speaking English. But it was, so it was quite common to kind of remove the main actor from as much of the film as possible because it made it much easier to direct everybody else that was Italian. And so it, the fact that they've put him in a coma now and letting the brother take over, because the brother is an established actor. He's been in other Peplum films. Oh, yeah, and he, he's quite good. Um, and he's yeah, Exactly, he can act. Yeah. So... He takes over whilst um, we just occasionally cut back to a sleeping, <laughs> a sleeping <laughs> Ursus. But yeah, well, this is. For, I mean, I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen enough films to to say how often this happens. But it's certainly not unusual to to put your main star out of action in the middle of these films. Well, uh, at this point, we have the brother character uh, Elo or Eco. He's captured and uh, uh, Aniko. is imprisoned in her underground rooms, which apparently are no longer a secret. Uh, They're both kind of trapped in there behind a big rock by our bad guy, uh, Zaratelli, or Zara, depending on which print of the film you're watching. He's taking control of the tribes, our bad guy has, and he's out to finish off the Jocassians once and for all. Oh, yeah, we haven't... Did we mention before, actually, before Ursus was rendered unconscious uh zaratelli had sent out an assassin to kill him oh i know that was a great sequence too yeah and the assassin failed because you know he would he will Um, yeah he's not gonna manage it um but then um he sends somebody later as well anyway sorry getting ahead of ourselves but yeah zaratelli is trying to privately assassinate ursus as well as publicly starting a war against his tribe so he's kind of He's not hedging his bets, you know, he's going all out to take over and he knows that Ursus is the is in his way, one way or another. Yeah, and it should be pointed out that as you're saying there, it is a two pronged attack on Ursus and his tribe because 
this guy is a pretty intelligent leader or bad guy who's trying to consolidate his power and he knows that Ursus or Hercules are really the is really the only thing in his way. Yeah. And like I was saying before in relation to the three Western, this is this is the plot of most of the Peplum films. Some the strong uh, hero character uh, is up against an evil tyrant who has taken power unjustly, you know. So this is classic Peplum. Uh, action here. <laughs> well, while uh, Elo and Aniko are trapped in the love cave, uh, <laughs> An- An- Aniko's henchman, with his dying breath, uh, oh, well, well, I'm sorry, I'm I'm skipping something. Um, at a certain point, Eco actually gets uh, grabbed by the bad guy's men and thrown into actual prison. Yeah. Um, he's aware of the fact that he's Hercules' brother. And knows that if he holds on to him, he might use him as a bargaining chip. So while he's there, uh, he runs across Aniko's henchman, or slave, who uh, has been tortured pretty much to death at this point, and tells uh, Elo or Eko uh, a great secret about yeah. Aniko, but he whispers it, so we don't know what it is yet. No, we've got no idea what it could be. Except... Uh, I kind of did at this point. Well, not <laughs> not that part of it. Like I say, the the black hair, blonde hair thing was a clue, but yeah. Well, also, I mean, I'd I'd started to get suspicious every time she said, "Oh, have some of my special wine." Yeah. I'm like, hang on a minute. Oh, but when haven't you... we we've, we've missed a little bit again here? Um, before Eo gets captured, he's because he's gone to the cave. This is after. Um, Ursus is injured I think he's gone to the cave looking for Aniko and he's with his friend and then they get trapped in the cave because they can't find the button to open the secret door right and he and his friend is like freaking out about being trapped in this cave so then he goes and finds something to drink because he was like oh there's some wine over there and then his friend in inverted commas disappears and the monster is there and Eo thinks that the monster has killed his friend or whatever Right, and um, so then Eo has to fight the monster, and it's a much better fight. He's a better fighter than Ursus was, and they have this big fight, and eventually the monster goes over the cliff, or like there's a big there's a there's a little mini cliff in the cave. Yeah, like a and pit then, or something. Yeah, and when he looks down, the monster is gone, and there's his dead friend, and he still doesn't quite put the two things together here. Yeah, I and know. He thinks, uh, for, he thinks for the, the monster smart brother, is, he's a little slow on the uptake. Yeah, he thinks the monster has killed his friend and then run away. <laughs> um, and then it's shortly after this, after that happens, that he gets captured and taken to the prison, and then he speaks to this guy mm-hmm. and learns the secret. Well, it's at this point that uh, Hercules, who had been wounded by the monster earlier, is saved by uh, a healer, but his wounds are pretty rough. So, like you say, he's laid up kind of in a coma for a while. So before um, all of this, Zeratelli had led an army to come and fight. And this is a bit I wanted to mention. Okay. There's a, the, the, his army attack the uh, Ursus's tribe. Like they go to their, there's a fort and he attacks. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's quite a, you know, it's quite a good fight, even though Ursus isn't there to join in. And there's a really funny bit. And if you notice this, and this is one of the problems with it, watching it on a good print, um, you see a guy standing in a watchtower gets shot by an arrow 
and he turns and falls through the through the the railing. Did you notice this? And the <laughs> like, you see this. It's a classic thing. You see it in movies all the time. You know, they're supposed to like fall. The, the railing breaks and they fall. And, ah. I remember the scene, but I'm not. But I'm the not... oh well, the railing is is pre-cut, and. Oh. And just swivels open like they're on, like it's a, a gate at a train station. <laughs> so you see him go, ah, and fall through what looks like a gate. It's that obvious that this is a pre-cut swivel <laughs> barrier. You're because, reminding of one of my favorite um, special effects screw-ups in action sequences, which is when uh, a window or a glass pane breaks before the stuntman yes. hits it. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's later. That's at the big fight at the end of the film. Yeah, there's a bit where he jumps through a window that's clearly made out of plastic, but uh, yeah, so so we've got this hilarious fight and that happens, which made me laugh immensely. <laughs> but then, so Zeratelli wins this battle, yeah, and then he he leaves one of his guys behind. He says, "You're going to stay here and pretend that you were hurt in the fight, so that oh, they yeah. will look after you, and that's how you're going to get close to Ursus and then kill him." And then the guy says, "But." I haven't been hurt in the fight. So Zeratelli just grabs his knife and like a sword and slashes at his face. <laughs> yeah. So this guy's then wounded and he gets found as a survivor of this battle. And he claims to have been a traveling merchant or whatever who was passing through. So he is in the same cave uh, recovering as, uh, as Ursus. So he, he kind of tries to, this, this comes to the point where you just said, so this guy, Attacks, tries to attack Ursus. Um, but but uh, Katia intervenes. Yeah. And she, she says, I know you. She suddenly, because this is something with her backstory that we didn't mention perhaps, so that she was found as a child and she'd mm. lost her memory. And so no about, one really knows who she no one is. knows who she is and she doesn't know who she is. But she says, she calls this man an assassin. She says, I know you, assassin. And then he starts to fight with her and that wakes up Ursus. Sorry, I'll let you carry on. No, no, no. You're, you're. There are things that I'm clearly leaving out, and I'm kind of jumping around in. And you're, okay. you're doing a, you're doing a good job of catching me up to the pieces that I forget. Well, like I said, before, lots of these films are secondary to the action, so it's quite easy to, uh, to get a bit lost in there because it doesn't all make a lot of sense. But so <laughs> Ursus wakes up from his coma just in time to throw a knife and stab this uh, guy uh, in the back. And of course, once he's it? awake, he uh, yeah. he's now he's now mostly healed and ready for action. Oh yeah, so and he's he and got a very man, very sorry, nice bandage wrapped around his uh, chest. Yeah, to remind to us make, that he was injured. Yeah, <laughs> he keeps it on. He keeps the bandage on for the rest of the film, just so that you know if he if he happens to not quite be able to fight somebody, we'll feel sorry for him. <laughs> Good way to put it. But then also, uh, Cato is so distressed by all this that she sort of passes out and talks in her sleep right and she starts mumbling and it's like her memory has actually finally come back and it turns out that uh, she remembers that she is the true uh amiko or yeah she's saying i am aniko i am aniko so she's the real "Hmm, daughter of the con (laughs) that was killed years before yeah although ursa still doesn't quite seem to grasp what's going on but He's then he has just thick. woken up out of a coma yeah yeah well i mean i guess that's a good enough reason to kind of yeah. not be so fast on the uptake but. <laughs> ah! 
me. Don't kill me, Hercules. I'll serve you as a slave for as long as you live. But I beg you, don't kill me. You must pay for your murders and for stealing the throne. Uh, didn't Nico tell you all that? Then I'll tell you another thing. She's not the daughter of the great Khan. The real Aniko was wounded that terrible night, and because I was afraid she would die, I sent her away. Katya. Katya's the real daughter of the great Khan. I saved her life, Zara. And she'll rule. But she'll die. There's no sign of Aniko in the palace. Where is she? How do you expect me to know where she is? Where is she? You can forget her. I left her trapped in the grotto, in the grotto of the Falcon. She'll never get out. Put him in chains. Well, the Ursus grabs his uh, his his tribe of folks, and with the help of some other tribes, they attack and they they attack the city and uh, take on Zeratelli and his men. And this uh, I I gotta say I really like this hand to hand combat sequence and all these sets. Uh, this is pretty fun stuff. This is what I come to a peplum to see, really. Yes. Well, exactly. Exactly. This is what the audiences were waiting for. Our bad guy. Um, well, here's here's the interesting thing, and I I kept wondering what was going on here. This battle is going on, and of course Hercules slash Ursus is trying to get to uh, Zeratelli or Zara, whichever name he's going by in the dub you're watching, yeah. and. The guy is running throughout different uh, sets in this place, trying to stay away from the the approaching good guys. And at one point, he has a, a bow, and he notches an arrow, and then the scene cuts, and then there's a lot of more fighting going on. And then the next time we see him, he's running down a set of stairs, and he's got a sword in his hand. And I'm thinking, what the hell? I mean, didn't he shoot anybody with the bow? What, what happened? Well, we don't need to worry too much about things, little things like that. <laughs> it, it, but th- th- this is the fight where uh, Ursus, I think Ursus, throws a man through a window. Yes. And um, the window is clearly made out of just, it's like the kind of plastic that they use for gels on lights. It's like really yeah. flimsy. And, and the guy just goes straight through it. It's, and it it's just so kind of wobbles. And, and what's odd is that the although we're seeing Reg Park as Hercules from behind when he does this, the, the the kind of physical reaction he has when he throws this guy through that window is almost as if he's doing a double take at that as at, at that himself, you know. <laughs> like, what the hell? That wasn't supposed to happen that way. But you know, there wasn't time for a second take, so they just carried yeah. on. Another another very popular fight move that, that happens in in this one that they do in all the films I've watched is where a circle of soldiers kind of crowd around the hero and he goes down on the floor and they're all around him and then he jumps up and they all go flying off in different directions. Yeah. That it's, happens a, it's, a, it's a feat of strength, which yeah. I could buy in the, uh, the Greek mythology ones where we're supposed to believe that Hercules is some kind of demigod. But here I don't know how easy it is to buy it because this isn't a demigod. This is just a guy. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we don't know why Ursus. He's just a strong guy. I mean, it's it's funny when you compare him to Steve Reeves. I think uh, Reg Park was bigger. Yeah, he's got he a much was. bigger body than than Steve Reeves. And like I say, I think he handles himself in the fights a little bit better than Steve Reeves, who I always thought was a little stiff, as if he were yeah. adhering to you know 
choreography a little too tightly and he wasn't kind of loosening himself up so that it looked naturalistic. Ridge Park yeah. seems to, to have that part of it down, but Reeves could deliver dialogue a little more believably. Steve Reeves was more into the posing. I mean, and I think because he did a lot of magazine, I mean, Reg Park probably did too, actually, but Steve Reeves was posing for a lot of men's uh, magazines and then they would do these kind of traditional statues like, you know, like the Greek statues, uh, Olympic yeah. poses and all that sort of stuff. So Steve Reeves seemed to be, seemed to look more natural when he was standing still <laughs> <laughs> basically. But yeah, Reg Park is definitely uh, having a good time. Once he doesn't have to talk. Yeah, yeah. Or, or show emotion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and it is kind of weird. Uh, we should say that um, if you're used to seeing Reg Park in his other roles with a beard, here he has no beard. He's clean shaven, and it makes him look simultaneously younger and kind of stranger. Um, right. He... he there are a number of times from different angles where, you know, the scene continues and you see it definitely is him, but God, he looks, he looks strange at times. Did, did he have a beard before? Because he was actually being Hercules and they were trying to do it as a continuation of the Steve Reeves Hercules. That would be my thought, but I'm not right. sure. Okay. That makes sense. Um, cause I know Steve Reeves didn't want to do Hercules anymore cause they wanted to make more with him and he wanted to do something else. Yeah. So that would make sense if they got Reg Park to have a beard so that he would look more like Steve Reeves. But here, he's Ursus, so you know he can shave. It's cool. <laughs> well, um, during this fight sequence, uh, Hercules finally catches up with uh, Zaratelli or Zara and uh, corners him and is, uh, you know, has him at his mercy. And it's here that uh, the bad guy spills the beans and says that uh, Aniko isn't really Aniko, but a girl that he had take her place when he thought that the true Aniko had been killed along with her father, you know, back decades before. Yeah. So when he when he killed he well he had the father killed. Yeah. And to try to kill the daughter, but she obviously escaped and was so traumatized that she lost her memory. And then, but for him to be able to try and keep power, he had to have the king, the Khan's daughter on his side. So he just got some passing 10 year old, we're supposed to believe, <laughs> with who, dark happened, hair. who happened to be a witch. Well, yeah, you would think people <laughs> would notice that the daughter's hair had changed color. <laughs> I overnight. you think. But uh, we don't have to worry about that. But yeah, so somehow he's got this um, passing witch, girl, child to step in and be the Khan's daughter instead. Which means for, the incest thing is off the table, so that's good, I guess. Phew. <laughs> something we were all very relieved about. True. But, well, Hercules, proving that he is a good guy, he just locks uh, Zeratelli up, and uh, he finds out that uh, the false Aniko is trapped in the love cave and goes to free her. Um he gets there, he removes the big uh, styrofoam rock from in front of the cave, um, <laughs> complete with uh, styrofoam. That, Are you kidding? It's, he was really struggling with that. <laughs> this, what kills me is the sound effects, which often can sell an effect like that. In this case, I honestly thought they were just rubbing pieces of styrofoam together for the sound yeah. effect. It didn't even help. <laughs> but anyway, he gets in there. Um, she tries to talk to him uh, and talk him into kind of uh, furthering the masquerade, 
but you know about her actually being the Khan's daughter. But uh, he's against it because I think at this point he is he he's well aware now. Okay, wait a minute. So Katya, the hot blonde that I've kind of kept in my in my yeah. hut for years and years now, she's the actual Khan's daughter. I, I looks like I've lucked out big time here. Well, yeah. <laughs> even though even though he said earlier in the film. I love her like a sister. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which brings the incest question right back in. Yeah, it? because she clearly pines for Ursus, but he only loves her like a sister. Well, <laughs> I'm sure now that she's the Khan's daughter, that can oh, no, be brushed sorry. aside. I've, I've misquoted that. What he says is, I love her like a brother, meaning that she is his <laughs> sister. Not I love her like a sister, because that would be even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> If she's not good enough for her own family. Yeah, oh, although he does, he does run around in a tiny skirt, so, you know. Well, actually, it's, it's, well she runs around in a nice little outfit, but that's yeah. beside but, the point. Yeah. That actress, but it, well, what's great with these films is that the men wear shorter skirts than the women. <laughs> and of course, he the, rarely the has word, a shirt the, on, so. Yeah, the word peplum kind of derives from a, a Greek word for skirt. And uh, you can still, if you Google Peplum now, you just find loads of websites selling skirts. Is that so, why I get those weird images? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. So we've got oh, to no, the no, point no. Uh, where. Well, so she, she's, um, she's trying to talk him into keeping this up. Uh, he says no, but uh, also finally his, his, you know, he's still a little tired. His wounds are still bothering him. Oh, yeah. And, uh, he, does, he does this kind of really melodramatic sort of faint. Yeah, kind towards, of towards the uh, the fur the the, the fur lined uh, bed <laughs> that, she, that she's got right there in the cave, and she's like, um, "Oh, you need to have a drink of the special wine. <laughs> this will perk you up." And, and yes, of course it will. Uh, and of course, it's this wine that has been turning him into the monster that's been attacking everyone, and uh, he gets her. Uh, well, she gets him to drink it. And then he sends him off. She sends him off to uh, to try to kill Katia, the the real Aniko, and get rid of her, and uh, kind of you know clearly pave the way for her to stay in the position she's been in for a long time. So yeah, she it turns out that what she wants to do is rule the kingdom for herself and use Ursus as her zombie slave. And so obviously. Black hair means evil, just as we surmised, right? Yeah, what a shock. <laughs> Sometimes the genre tropes, they're, they're funny, but you, I mean, you understand why they're there. But at the same time, they, they bring a level of predictability to these stories that can be a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. So, yeah, it's all right. I mean, you know, it's all fun. I don't mind. Oh, I don't mind it either. <laughs> Uh, well, um, uh, Hercules' brother gets to the cavern and tries to stop the uh, the false Aniko from uh, hurting anyone else. Uh, he has figured stuff out. Um, well, she stumbles off a ravine and falls to her death. Uh, is it that same like pit there in the cave? I can't remember. Yeah, but you, you think of all the people who know the cave well, it's going <laughs> to you know she is the one who knows her way around the best, and yet she just falls down this hole. Well, I guess it's to keep uh, the film from having a scene where we have a guy take a sword and stab a woman to death. Yeah, but also what I thought was funny is we, like earlier in the film, when Eo and his friend are trapped and they're trying to get out the door, and he's like freaking out because he can't get out. But then we see, I think, is it after she falls down the pit? There's like another way out. They just go another way, and they 
the, the cave is huge and they just seem to go down some tunnels and I, I know. So it turns out, turns out that this cave is quite easy to get in and out of after all. If you just you know pay attention. Yeah. And walk around a little bit in the back there. Exactly. Yeah. Back in see the store that, room. If you can see light, if you're in a cave and you can see light coming from somewhere, the chances are <laughs> that that's the way out. If you can still breathe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, so we've got Ursus. He's run off with all of this uh, clay cake to his face. And all this yak hair taped to his body. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hairy. Now, do you think, I was trying to work out whether it is still Reg Park once it's the monster or if it's someone else. I couldn't quite in figure out scenes, whether it's the same actor or not. Yeah, yeah, in some scenes it looks like it might have been Reg Park in that makeup. And in some scenes I don't think it was. Um, the, For instance, the scene where he tries to stab his brother to death early in the movie... Um, whoever that is has a beer belly. <laughs> That's okay, true. that does not look like Reg Park because well, the, the the monster has been drinking a lot of wine. <laughs> maybe maybe that's a side effect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true actually. Because I guess one they, they they must have just thought they could that anybody could wear that makeup really. Well, the yeah. Well, I, well, at this point, what we have is uh, the monstered up Hercules who has grabbed Katia and is running through the forest with her yeah. I guess and to like, take her someplace mountain, convenient climbing, to kill her? seems to be climbing high up a mountain for some yeah. reason for, for whatever reason I mean you know he could have killed her at any point but I guess he wanted to do it in a very cinematic way something like oh, yeah. that oh is he going to throw her off the cliff I think or something like that oh that would make sense I can see that yeah. which would explain why he was where he was when um after Aniko is killed, um, the wine, the wineskin that has the special wine in it, pours out of the bottle all across the floor. And as soon as it's poured out on the ground, uh, the curse is lifted from Hercules, and he turns back into himself. Which which makes total sense to me. I mean, why why wouldn't the <laughs> magic wine lose its power once it's poured on the floor, even though he'd already drunk some? Okay, let's a, let's think about this for a second. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to get off into an area where we're trying to apply logic to this story. That's not where I'm going. Um, but I would have liked any anything in the dialogue of either version of this movie that even acknowledged that the wine had to have been created somehow. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, like, what is it? Is it magical? Is it chemical is it I mean, what 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 is this stuff well that's what i was thinking I mean, if if it loses its power when she's dead then it has to be connected to her magic rather than being some kind of magic herb that she, you know some kind of special herb that she found growing in the back of the cave yeah so it has Again. to be a spell but if it's a spell why didn't she just cast a spell why did it need to be wine that anybody any passing stranger could accidentally drink <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which happens at least once in this movie. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous business leaving uh, enchanted wine hanging around the place. <laughs> and did you notice how little wine they drink? She'd say, yeah. oh, have some of this. Oh, you look tired. You need a drink. She'd like pour some out for them and they take a tiny sip. Is yeah, they, boom. It's almost as if the glass is actually uh, completely empty. <laughs> and they're just pretending to drink from it. 
but yeah so the the he's up the mountain with her about to throw her off the cliff and then his face is all back to normal yeah and so he kind of comes to realizes that he for some reason is carrying katya in his arms yeah. and that the entire forest around him is on fire oh yeah i can't even remember how did the forest how did the fire start i think did uh, he if start I'm, if he started it when he was the monster i don't remember or were the hunter guys were, were the tribesmen like did they spot him and were chasing him i can't oh, remember yeah. now so his brother i think his brother and the guys the, the, the old gang were out chasing him. I think when he snatched her, he set some stuff on fire, and oh, this yeah. fire okay, is spread right. up the hill. So, so he's at the top of a cliff, and there's a fire. So, what's he going to do? Uh, good question. Because up till now, this film has given us no quick answers for a forest fire. Yeah. <laughs> but suddenly, third act. Now mm. there's a way. And and let's be honest. The reason there's a forest fire that needs to be put out is because Antonio Margheriti knows how to do special effects. Okay? Yeah. That's what it, it boils down to. It makes you wonder whether that was written into the script first or if he said, oh, I've got this uh, idea for how to put out a fire with a, some, I don't know. <laughs> like, which a, came a first? Because it doesn't really, so the story doesn't need it. No, it doesn't. It's, it's the a massive thing. Uh, it's a really weird way to end the film. Anyway. See, yeah, sorry. Forest fire. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, there's a forest fire. And suddenly um, we watch uh, Hercules decide, oh, I need to fix this. And so he goes over on the side of the cliff face and pushes a giant styrofoam boulder. I'm sorry, a giant <laughs> boulder uh, down yes. the hillside, which crashes into this heretofore unknown dam, a wooden yeah. dam. That bursts open, releasing all this water onto the fire down below and putting it out. So up until this point, we've never seen the dam. We don't know about the dam. <laughs> nope. Where did they? Where did that come from? And why was it out in the middle of nowhere? And I was mildly confused because up till this point in the film, the only um, like wooden edifice, wooden wall structure of that type that we've seen has been the fort. Yeah. And so I thought, why is he bothering to crash a boulder through the fort wall? Yeah. That's his own fort. Exactly. <laughs> it is. So and then the water comes bursting out, and they're like, yeah. oh, okay, so that wasn't uh, the fort. I don't even think we've even seen the river right. that was leading to the dam. There's not been The river hasn't been a part of the plot at any point. They haven't gone on a boat. Nope. They've never mentioned the dam. I mean, the way these things normally work is that you, you tee up something in Act 1, that is going to be massively significant at the climax of Act 3. You know, like the classic, you never show a gun in Act 1 unless you plan to use it in Act 3. Right. You show something that's going to have some significance, but you don't realize what the significance of it is until the final act. Right. So, so they, would, the they should have had a scene film, where yeah. they should have had some somebody passing the dam and going, well, this dam is the strongest thing we've ever made. Look at all that water it's holding, blah, 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 blah. Or Something have like the that. dam play into why Hercules' tribe is so important because they yeah. are the people who built it and therefore take care of it and therefore that's something that makes them kind of powerful within all these different tribes. Yeah, but, like they, they control the water supply to the right. city or something. 
which would have been really great. It would have folded well into why they have a certain amount of power and why it would be important for our bad guy to subvert yeah. them and take them over. But instead, it's just <laughs> it's just suddenly <laughs> it's this tacked on as an afterthought, so that uh, Margarissi had something t- to contribute. Uh, yeah, that's what it seems like exactly. <laughs> but it's well done and it's well photographed and yeah. Um, it's shot in slow motion, so it all kind of works, and the scale is pretty good. Yep. Um, I read what I think it's in, actually in the book. The, the the guy that was writing this particular page on the film in the book says that it it's not very. Says it, it calls it an optical effect, but I don't think it is optical. Like, I think the fire and the water were all there at the same time. I don't think they've superimposed the fire. No, it doesn't look like an optical effect. Because he's trying to say, uh, I, again, with some of these things, you get the suspicion sometimes that people are writing about films they haven't actually seen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and possibly when this book was written, they thought the people who are reading this book are going to be people who want to know about Cannibal Holocaust. So when, let's not actually bother tracking down a copy of Hercules, Prisoner of Evil. We'll just make it up from yeah. you know plot descriptions that we've read. Because I'm pretty sure that that fire is put out by the water it all it's all seems to work and again yeah margariti was good for doing trick shots he wouldn't want to waste the time and the money doing all that kind of nonsense it's just all done in camera right i mean that's the cheapest way to do this stuff and yeah. he'd worked at this point for years learning how to do it and do it in a way that was cost effective so why add to the shot and you know mm. make a, a whole extra process that's just yeah money been that's 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 money you don't need to spend exactly so even though it's it's a kind of pointless bit of the film uh it looks good which like i was saying before was was the main thing it didn't matter about the plot so much as uh as the the big dramatic moments well that's one of the the neater things about following margariti's career um and i'm that's why i've loved covering a number of his films for the podcast is that you can kind of even by jumping around in his career over time, you can see how he would, uh, he and his team would perfect certain effects and get better and better at them. So, for instance, there are some amazing miniature water effects that take place in uh, You're the Hunter from the Future. Oh, yeah. And it took me a second or third viewing of the film to be able to realize, oh hell, those are miniatures because they're so well matched to the to the shots of the actual people. They've built the miniatures so well, and the, they filmed the water effects at the right speed. It, everything looks perfect. It's just one of those things where he started out good and got better and better and better at it. Yeah, you're you're the hunter from the future is another film that I haven't seen yet. <laughs> oh really? So I, I look forward to getting to that one. Well, um, you know, pay attention because if you can get your hands on the uh, the full length Italian TV version, there's a whole lot of extra monsters in that film. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 fun no matter how you see it, but the the longer version is even more fun. Cool. Well, okay. Um, well, the film wraps up with uh, Hercules's brother being the only person who knows the full truth about the monster, but he keeps it <laughs> to himself. The, he's the only one who's been paying attention to the plot of this film. <laughs> he's the only one who figured anything out. <laughs> but he, he keeps it to himself. And uh, he and his a few of his buddies, they, they ride off to the palace 
ahead of everyone else to place Katya on her throne. And it's clear that uh, uh, Hercules slash Ursus is, is going to be the con now because he's going to marry Katya. Uh, yeah. And I guess they'll go off and have little blonde babies and everybody's she's been in, happy. she's been in love with him for years anyway. Yeah. And she knew, going back to when she saw um, the monster try and kill his brother, and she took the sword and hid it under her pillow, that's because she knew that the monster was him. And yeah, she, she knew, knew She recognized it as his sword. Yeah. And she was trying to protect him. So she, So I guess the fact that he was now trying, he's just been trying to kill her. She knew it was him, and so she forgave him pretty quickly because she was in love with him anyway. But I guess she also knew that he was under some kind of spell, and he wasn't. She didn't take it personally. <laughs> well, you know, he's he's under the spell of another woman. Yeah, magic well. wine, right? And then they I think, don't they kiss uh, while they're still on the cliff, and he's just put the fire out. I think they, they I think kiss so. that. Yeah, and it just it looks again. I think I said this in my blog post. It looks really awkward. He's just so uncomfortable at doing any of this sort of emotional act yeah. that even when he kisses her, it looks like he's struggling to do that, which, <laughs> you know, again, she's a very good looking woman. Oh, yeah. And I'm um, sure all, all of us would have liked a chance to uh, show him how to do it. Uh, I would. I would be. Yeah. Uh, the actress uh, who plays uh, Kato or Katia is Maria Teresa Orsini. And. Mm. Wow! Yeah, she was just a she's gorgeous, gorgeous lady. Yeah, and she, she was only a, in eight movies or seven movies. Yeah, she kind had a, of. a short career. Yeah, a lot of a lot of those kind of careers I'm I'm finding out about as I do more study of Italian and uh, Spanish and German cinema. Is a lot of these people who, uh, especially the women, who come into the film industry, usually from modeling. And they do a few movies, and they realize they don't like it, and they just leave. They, yeah. They they don't they don't enjoy the process. It's not fun, and they just say they've had enough and move on. And some and, and quite often as well. I mean, certainly actresses that I've spoken to, they they just got married. Yeah. And yeah. and had children, and that was it. And for a lot of these, you know, the, the sort of films that we're watching, these are all quite they're all relatively young, like in their early twenties. Mm-hmm. And once they got married, either. They'd marry somebody who was rich, so they didn't need to work anymore, or they had children and just quit, and then maybe they come back in 20 years, or yeah. maybe they don't, and so they just seem to disappear. They drop off the radar. I mean, one the one particularly well-known actress that I spent a long time tracking down was a British actress called Candice Glendening, and she starred in uh, Satan's Slave, and she's in a, a really terrible but quite entertaining film called Tower of Evil, which I'm sure some of your listeners may have seen. <laughs> and the story with her was everyone just assumed that the story was that she was dead. Somebody thought she'd committed suicide hmm. because she just basically disappeared in the late seventies and nobody could find her. And I found her, um, about five or six years ago. And it turned out that she hadn't died. She hadn't committed suicide. She'd just got married, had children and got a job as a social worker. <laughs> was she, yeah. She went on to a regular life. So when so when people in the business think that somebody's dead, it's just because they their only research has been you know finding their agent or or looking them up in the directories, and if they're not there anymore, they must have died. The fact that they might have just quit the business doesn't occur to them, you know. Well, and once they're out of the business, it it does seem very difficult, at least 
it did. Uh, these days, more and more people are turning up on social media, and yeah. people just find them on something like Facebook and say, "Hey, are you this yeah. person?" Yeah. <laughs> if you do it and often some, and, enough, you eventually find them. Oh yeah, and and some of them, um, yeah, they find a second life on the uh, convention circuit. But it's a shame. I mean, for I, I can't imagine there are many conventions for the Peplum film. So the kind of actors who mostly appeared in these kind of films and then just quit the business. I don't think people are queuing for their autographs, which is a shame, really. Yeah, some of the ones that uh, do find a life in that kind of thing are ones that also appeared in uh, specific horror movies. And yeah. if they were, if they, especially if they were more than one or two of them, I mean, because before she decided to stop doing it, you know, you, you've got Barbara Steele, who was in what, like seven or eight gothic horrors in the 60s. Yeah. And she could she could live off that for the rest of her life if she wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> have you met her? Because I know she does she does appear at conventions, isn't she? No, I have not. I mean she seems to do a lot of she lives in America now and does does the circuit, I think. But uh but yeah, I think what you need to have done is to have done a horror film. If you did horror, yeah. then your longevity was uh with fans anyway is kind of guaranteed. Whereas if you mainly did Peplum films, then it's that that's not quite so uh Helpful for your long term. I'm, I'm reminded uh, years ago in the um, mid '90s, before the uh, the uh, rather <laughs> torturous return of the Star Wars films to cinema. Um, I was at a convention in Atlanta, and Dave Prowse was there. Oh yeah. And of course, for most of the people there, it was oh, this is Darth Vader, Darth Vader, Darth Vader. And uh, I was standing next to some of these these folks who were saying that and i just looked at him and i said the hell with that he was the monster from hell yeah exactly <laughs> that's what i and that's what i got i got a photograph for, of him as the monster from hell and got oh, him to cool. autograph it for me that's on my wall right now um i went to the opening night in my local cinema of episode two i think it was of star wars mm -hmm. and dave prowse was in the lobby signing autographs and i had no idea he was going to be there and i didn't <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't going to buy an autograph because I couldn't really afford it. But I went up and spoke to him anyway, and said how much I loved him in Vampire Circus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, he was really pleased because obviously everybody was there because it was Star Wars. But uh, he, he's really proud of Vampire Circus because it's probably one of the only ones, maybe apart from Clockwork Orange, where he's not wearing a mask or makeup. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you actually see his face. So he was very pleased that I was able to mention that. But yeah, I, I've since met him again, and, and I have got his autograph this time. But yeah, it's fun when you can uh, when you can talk to them about the stuff that isn't what everyone else knows them for. Oh yeah, oftentimes you'll watch these people's faces just light up because it's like, yeah. oh, thank God, someone wants yeah. to talk about something other than the thing that everyone brings up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe in Italy, some of these people do have more of an afterlife in their, their sort of. They're, they're known locally. I've got no idea, but there are so many because there are so many of these films. There's a lot of actors and actresses coming and going. So yeah, you can't imagine many of them are still be, you know, able to milk that kind of celebrity all these years later. <laughs> well, um, back to the film we're talking about just yeah, briefly. Um, yeah, I want to say that 
as we talked about at the beginning, a number of these movies, it's it's almost as if they realized that they were kind of going to the, the Greek mythology well too often. And so they, yeah. they did branch out. They did start doing things like this where we're talking about, you know, Mongols and Tartars and things like that. And that's cool because you can kind of tell the same story, but it looks different. It feels different. You can get some, some kind of different flavor going on. And that's, and that's something I get a kick out of. But, um, of course, once they got brought over to the States, it all got thrown into the great big Hercules vat. and Everything yeah. got dubbed into being basically just another Hercules film. And uh, I guess to a certain degree, the audience these were aimed at, which I guess were kids, uh, weren't going to be that questioning about it. They weren't going to be picky about the fact that uh, this is not a Greek story. We're not, you know, in a warm, deserty land. We're... In forests and caves, what is this all about? So this is the kind of thing when I start going through a, a phase where I want to watch a bun- bunch of these films, um, I don't mind when I run across one where, you know, suddenly, like you said, we're in Scotland or Egypt <laughs> exactly, or yeah. wherever. I, I kind of like it. I'd quite like to see the, um, I forget the name of it now, the one where it's kind of a Western one where they go to... Um, I think it's like Hercules and the Aztecs or something like that. There's one of those. Oh, I need to see that one. And there's one one where um, Samson or Machiste uh, is in King Solomon's Mines, which is quite (laughs) fun. It's like uh, they could really just go with whatever they wanted. Because all of these stories, I guess ultimately all of the stories or the myths or the legends or whatever public domain so they could do whatever they wanted with them nobody was going to come up and say oh you can't do that to hercules yeah who was paying attention who, who's gonna who are they going to complain to right. zeus yeah. who's gonna <laughs> what are they what's <laughs> who can do anything about it? was there a an italian cultural board or a greek cultural board that was gonna rule on the cinematic offenses mm. of the peplum genre i mean oh no. man those those courts would be full <laughs> <laughs> that was true. They'd still they'd still be hearing them now. <laughs> we would, yeah. And there would they would have never made more than about five of these movies because yeah. we would have never gotten the what two to three hundred of them that probably got made. Yeah, but it's a fun film. I mean, despite I mean, obviously it's quite easy to mock. Yes, uh, and it's quite fun to mock, but it is still entertaining, and that's ultimately what I found with all the ones that I've watched recently is that they're very entertaining. There's also, we didn't mention earlier, but in, in most of the Peplum films, there's a dance number. Yes. Where whoever the ruler is, the sultan or the khan or whatever, will like, you know, clap his hands and out come the dancing girls. <laughs> and in this um, case, dancing guys too. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, which is unusual actually. Yeah, it was a mixed, a mixed dance troupe. But it always makes me think, it made me think of the... Um, you know, the Muppets movie, the, the recent one, and they go to try and talk to this evil oil baron, Tex Richmond, <laughs> yes, to, persuade, yes. to, to persuade him not to sell the, not to tear down the Muppet Theatre. And he like presses, a, he starts singing a song, and then these dancing girls come out of the cupboard and start <laughs> yeah. singing and dancing with him. And it's kind of like that. Like, uh, if you were an evil ruler in uh, mythological days, you just had these dancing girls just whenever you needed to uh, come out. Just, just waiting for the, waiting for the signal, and yeah. then here we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like now we've just got Netflix, so 
<laughs> if you want to be entertained, you just do that. But then they had to have dancing girls. Well, the, uh, the, the main problems I have with this movie are the problems that I have with a lot of the genre, which is um, the plot kind of spins its wheels for a little while in the middle. Once we're given the setup, uh, we have scenes like, as you were saying, the dancing girls. And um, we have maybe one or too many scenes of them doping out what's happening without everybody being clued in quickly enough. So it's almost as if we're going to hit this plot point really hard about six times (laughs) to make sure that you're getting it. But what it does is kind of point out that your characters are stupid because (laughs) they they haven't Uh, figured this out yet. But like I said at the beginning, it's because traditionally the the Italian audiences anyway, although by 1964 they knew that these films were going to be going abroad, but they were still showing at these kind of rural and second-run Italian theatres. Yeah. And so they knew that the, the, the cinema-going culture was such that they weren't all sitting there in silence watching the films like, like we purists would like. <laughs> you know, the cinemas were noisy, they were chatty, People weren't paying attention, so you had to keep reminding people of basically what was going on, or uh, you would lose them even more. Which is kind of strange, and I think it's one of the reasons why it may have worked so effectively on a young audience seeing these films on television. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's like being a television audience, or even a drive-in audience, where your attention is not on the film all the time. You're going to be going to the popcorn stand or if you're at home you're going to go to the bathroom or yeah and uh and you know back in the 60s you couldn't pause it while you left the room so yeah so you wouldn't be paying the film all your attention so you needed the plot to be simple and also quite repetitive to uh, to properly make the most get the most out of it but i will say the action sequences in this are very well done uh, mm. I, I like the fight scenes um there's enough a variety of characters and just enough complication to, to kind of keep it interesting. Um, you've only seen a handful of these movies. I've got to confess that I have seen dozens of these movies over the years. <laughs> Why am um, I not surprised? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I have, uh, no good excuse other than a, a total lack of a, of a, a public life outside of, <laughs> well, outside from what of, I've- yeah, from listening to your podcast, I, I can tell that your um, experience of Italian cinema goes back many decades. Well, yeah. not many decades. You're not that old, but you know what I mean. Well, no, you've been watching to Ita- you've been watching the late Italian 80s, early 90s, yeah. For a long time. For me, I have to confess that my up until only sort of five or six years ago, I was not that experienced with Italian cinema. So most of these films, although I was aware of them, they've kind of passed me by. And it's only... I, yeah, it's only maybe the last five years that I've made a concerted effort to get into Italian cinema. And I love it, and I wish I'd watched it sooner. But, I mean, up until then, the only Barber film I've ever seen was Danger Diabolic. Um, wow. And, and, you know, which is a good one, obviously. Yeah. But the main reason I watched that was because of the Beastie Boys video where they <laughs> cut themselves into Diabolic. You know? Yeah. So, um, so I'm trying to make up for lost time, but it does mean that I'm a bit of a newcomer to these, uh, these genres. Well, you seem to really be enjoying them the more you see of them. So, oh yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was inspired to, 
to do this Margariti blog because, um, I mean, obviously he's got such a massive catalogue of films and there's no point in me doing a Mario Bava blog because every, everyone's got one of those. Um, so I thought it would give it would be a good excuse for me to to, to dip into his film more. I've been catching up on on the Bava films and other films by Deodato and so on. In fact, Roger, Rogero Deodato just to after he finished this movie, uh, he went back to his day job of being an assistant director, and he yeah. didn't he didn't direct another film for another four years. And that film I haven't watched yet, but it looks amazing. <laughs> Which one was it? It's called Phenomenal and the Treasure of Tutankhamun. Ooh. And Phenomenal is a masked superhero. It's it's one of the it's it's a comic book movie like Diabolic um, about a masked uh, guy. This guy's mask doesn't even have eye holes or a mouth hole. It's basically just it's like one of those um, what do they call those? morph suits oh okay he's just wearing he's all black with a black <laughs> head and but uh, and you'd, you'd like this film I think because partly because the main thing I know about it is that the page in the uh, Deodato book is mostly full of photos of, of naked women in a sauna <laughs> so what what that has to do with the treasure of Tutankhamun I'm not sure but evidently the publicity I, I want to find out the publicity for the film focused mainly around all these bathing women, but um, but I just think it's really interesting. And again, Deodato's career is a, is a good template for what the Italian film industry was doing. So he goes from a from a peplum film, he's assistant uh, director on gothic horrors and spaghetti westerns like Django, yeah. And then the first, then he does a comic book movie, which were all the rage. Obviously, Diabolic is the one that we all know. But there were loads of them at that time. There's one called Satanic, and uh, there's quite a lot of those kind of comic-influenced films. So, although I won't be blogging about it because there's no Margariti connection, I will certainly be watching that one soon if I can find a good copy because I think that looks like it. Well, um, really quickly, let everyone know again about uh, the Antonio Margariti blog. Let them have the uh, the address. (laughs) Oh yeah, well look it up because there's only two entries, so it won't take you long to. to read the whole thing uh, so it's bloggerity as in blog h-e-r-i-t-i dot blogspot.com I don't know what film I'm going to do next possibly one of the I don't know I might go for uh, Wild Wild Planet because that oh that's a fun, fun one that's a great film I haven't watched it for a while but that is uh, I do <laughs> I do love that one or well, I might, do, I mean, I've, do I've you remember I've got a few of his films on Blu-ray in the last couple of years that I haven't even watched at all yet, so I might just start dipping into those. Do you remember what the first Margariti film was that you ever watched? That is a good question, and I've been trying to think what that is, and I honestly don't know. I mean, it, it might be, it might actually be Wild Wild Planet, which again was probably only about six or seven years ago, and that was when I didn't know who Margariti was. So I don't know. It's hard to say because he's made so many. Yeah. Um, but it might have been Wild Wild Planet. I mean, I'd like to say, oh, I saw, uh, you know, Castle of Blood when I was five years old, and or I saw Long Hair of Death on a on a rainy night when I was ten, and it's Garden Blood. I wish I had those stories, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to tell people about before we get out of here? Well, I'm still writing for Cinema Retro, and I've just read. Uh, this is slightly related, I suppose. There's a new biography out of Ricardo Freda, 
published by McFarland, and that's really good. So I've just been reading that to review that for Cinema Retro. Cool. Um, so Ricardo Freda obviously did a few Peplum films. One of and which a I have. few horror films. Well, yeah, exactly. And uh, and Deodato worked for him too. So uh, so there's lots of connections there. But the book is really good actually. Uh, although it does suffer from, I find McFarland books tend to be quite poorly edited. If I'm honest, my experience of McFarland is that they tend to publish without doing much in the way of proofreading. Oh um, really? Yeah, well, well, I've, I've run across problems with proofreading before, but I didn't know that that was still going on. Yeah, well, but just I don't know. McFarland are obviously they're obviously they're really great because they publish books that nobody else will. Yeah. But their <laughs> but their uh, editorial standards are perhaps a little bit less than I would like. But that, I'm quite fussy, I suppose. But anyway, that's not <laughs> to detract from the book itself. The book is excellent, so I do recommend it, and I'm going to review that. There's another book that they put out just recently, and I forget the name of the authors. And as I'm not sitting in my uh, house, I can't check. But they've just McFarland have put out another book, which is a kind of compendium of uh, peplum films so if you really like this genre it's worth having a look on the mcfarland website to find out what that is it's kind of like a guide what they've tried to do is basically include every peplum film they could get their hands on um but it's it's written so that there's a uh, credits and release date and then maybe one or just one or two lines of summary of the plot so it's very brief um, but if you want to become a completist of this genre, that gets quite a handy list to have, I guess. So that's quite good. Yeah, that would be uh, a book to get my hands on. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Even if I so, just want to figure out which ones I've already seen. Well, that's it. Yeah, but you would you would use it as a checklist because the information that's in there you can get on the IMDb. But what? But that's only if you know the film to go and look it up. So where right. this book is helpful is that it tells you the films that you might not know exist uh, and enables you to yeah, compile lists and, and so on. So that's pretty good. Uh, so, yes, I'm still writing for Cinema Retro and I, I write for Scream magazine as well. In the latest issue of Scream, I did an interview for um, with the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. So if you're a Harryhausen fan, that's quite interesting to find out what the foundation are up to. They're preparing for Ray Harryhausen's what would have been his 100th day is coming up uh, in 2020 I think it is so they're making plans for how they're going to celebrate that um, so you can read all about that in uh, in screen and what else am I doing I'm basically just trying to desperately finish my PhD because <laughs> it's taking forever and I just how, want it to how, be done how, how long have you been at it I started five years ago um, which is around when I started watching Italian films a bit more seriously, uh, because Italian cinema has ended up being a big part of my PhD. So, yeah, so it's taken me five years. I'm hoping to hand it in September. Yeah, so should be I should be all done and be a doctor by the end of the year, which would be <laughs> a big relief for everybody concerned, especially my family, who I think are a bit sick of it too. <laughs> well... Um, yeah. Once it happens, we'll have to throw you a party, Adrian. Thank you. Yeah, I'll have a big uh, Facebook event. I'll set up a <laughs> camera in my house <laughs> or something. I don't know. Good idea. Yeah, it will just—it'll be a great relief because every time at the moment, every time I watch a movie for fun, I feel guilty that I should probably be doing something that's for my PhD. <laughs> um, so it's quite hard to not 
to do anything that isn't my PhD without feeling guilty about it. But so ah. it'll just be good to get that out of the way, and then I can go back to just watching any old crap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I used to. I mean, I've well, got, that, I've and seen, eventually you'll start to feel guilty because you're not watching a Margariti film, so you can well, write exactly. about it for the blog, uh, right? I, I've, yeah, oh dear. What do, what do we do to ourselves? So we put ourselves it's, under so much pressure that nobody else, nobody else cares. Nobody else cares. You're right. No one <laughs> but does. We do it to ourselves. It's it it's all this sense. pressure we do to ourselves because we feel yeah. like if we're not producing, we're not doing something constructive with our time. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, crazy. Uh, I've got a big cupboard full of stuff waiting for me to watch as soon as I finish. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, Adrian. I want to thank you again for uh, suggesting covering this movie and uh, for bringing a lot of information about it that I did not know. Well, thank you. I, uh, I've enjoyed it. And, uh, and I hope that the uh, connection has uh, not proven to be too much of a problem when, when everyone listens. Uh, well, a few problems here and there, but I think we've got it pretty much okay. Awesome. Well, I'm always excited to, uh, to be involved and to, to especially you know, talking to you now that you must be a multimillionaire from your uh, <laughs> recent successes before Nashi Blu-rays. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah of I, course. Yes, I'm, I'm really grateful that you've uh, let somebody like me on. <laughs> yes, I'm just – Troy and I are just rolling in the money. It's amazing. <laughs> I had no idea. It's uh, I have to keep the door locked to the house or uh, all of the women, the groupies are amazing. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> You can build yourself a house out of all the free box sets they've sent you. <laughs> well, there have been a few freebies, but nevertheless, thank you again, no, Adrian. No problem. Thank you for having me. Bye. The following is a message from the American Podcast Council. We need your help. Podcastophobia strikes four out of five Americans every day, and chances are that someone you love or could love given time is currently suffering from this devastating affliction. But it doesn't have to be that way. For zero dollars a day, you can help. Please, make some time today to let just one person know about a favorite podcast of yours. It can be this one, but it doesn't have to be. But it probably should be, but seriously, no pressure. And show them where to find it and how to download, play, and subscribe to it. And tell us what you recommended. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you for speaking out. And thank you for listening. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome. To my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember 
the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Just wanted to thank you once again for listening to the show. As you could tell, the Skype connection uh, got a little wonky at a few spots. I tried to clean up the uh, staticky, clickery mess that uh, it occasionally descended into as best I could. But there's still a little staticky and it gets a little strange and... I know there are a couple of uh, seconds here and there where it's difficult to make out exactly what Adrian's saying. We did our best, and I think the vast majority of the show is just fine. But uh, if it uh, if it messed with your ears, I do apologize. Once again, if you have any comments or suggestions, or you just want to write to me and tell me how bad the show is or how good the show is, whichever it might be, the address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Write me there, and I swear I will attempt to uh, return your email. I'll answer you as best I can. Uh, You may even influence uh, a future episode of the show. I can say I am easily open to suggestion. I mean, after all, all Adrian has to do is drop me an email and say, hey, let's do this weird peplum film that supposedly Margariti directed, but actually he didn't. It was Ruggiero Diodato. So these are the kind of things that uh, I love learning about, and I hope you do too. Join us uh, next time as uh, I'm sure more Margariti films will get covered as Mr. Hudson and I make our return to that uh, very large pool of films. So join us once again and uh, we will talk to you next time. Conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and maybe satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Baby, close your eyes and listen to the music. Dig to the summer breeze. It's a groove and I can show you how to use it. To come along with me and put your mind at ease. Hey, a little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation and satisfaction in A little more bite, a little less bark A little less fight, a little more spark Set your mouth and open up your heart And baby, satisfy me Satisfy me, baby Come on, baby, I'm tired of talking Grab your coat and let's start walking Come on, come on Come on, come on Come on, come on don't procrastinate, don't articulate, girls get late, you just sit wait around. A little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more fight, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Shut your mouth and open up your heart, baby, satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Satisfy me, girl. Satisfy me, baby. Satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby.